From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball, the show where my three favorite topics of sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics and Data Science here at the Wharton School. Some combination of myself. Today, for the first part of the show, it happens to be my co-host from Statistics Department, Adi Weiner, Shane Jensen, and Kate Massey here every week on Wharton Moneyball, podcast edition here on Sirius XM 132, uh, Wharton School Radio, if you'd like. Uh, as per the last two years or so, or two and a half years or so, we've been starting off with a little bit of COVID discussion on kind of the statistical aspects of COVID. And then, of course, what our show's really about is talking about analytics, talking about sports, and its application more generally to business. So, Adi, how are you doing today? Very good. I've been having a good good week in the midst of Moneyball Academy, and we just started Moneyball Training Camp this week, and I was able to also welcome our friend in, uh, from PFF, uh, Eric Eager, who's co-teaching with me this week, and will be joining us on our show later today. Well, that's obviously great because, you know, it is about to be football time. And not that Eric, is, Eric, as we all know, is going to talk to us about non-football stuff. But, you know, we're all starting to get excited about the NFL season. And so it's perfect yeah. that we're going to get back into it here on Wharton Moneyball in the last at least half hour of our show and maybe more. So why don't we get started with COVID? I've got some things that caught my eye. Maybe I'll go over them quickly and then you could tell me what caught your eye. The first one is, you know, every week I've been doing this for the last two and a half years. I go to the CDC website. We've both talked many times about the noisiness of the data. I know you and I have no faith whatsoever, and there are a number of cases listed. Um, you know, I don't know if it's, we know it's a lower bound. I don't know if it's a multiple of three, five, 10, or 20. I should multiply their number by. But the number that we do have some faith in is deaths, although we all agree that some people die with COVID, not from COVID. But the number now is now up to, again, it was down to a low of about 270 a day. Then it went to 300, then 320, and now it's at about 355 a day. You might say, well, that's not that big a deal. Well, I mean, we all know every death matters. But of course, um, you know, on a percentage basis, it is up about 10% over the last month. So let's just start with that. Do you have any concerns about the three-month, let's call it 10% monthly increase in deaths from slash due to COVID. Any concerns about that? Uh, No, I I don't. In fact, I look at those numbers and I think that's pretty good considering that we all know based on our anecdotal and experiences combined with what we're seeing reported by the CDC that that we are in the midst of a a Omicron subvariant BA5 in particular mega surge. If I just were to list off all the numbers of cases I know among friends, among among students, it's it's we're in the midst of a biggie, and that the fact that it's that's ten percent up in deaths is uh, indic- indicative that it's just not having a that big of impact where it counts. So I thought I think of that as relatively very good news. And so your belief is that um, since this may lead to a you know while there may be another surge in the winter, there may not be just because of the amount of surge happening now, and the fact is people might not get COVID and other winter-related diseases. And so from a totality perspective, you could argue you might rather have a surge in the warmer months of the summer than you would rather have it in, let's say, flu or other types of seasons. Sure, uh, sure. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I can, I just, it's, it's, I also don't see mass, I mean, the CDC is reporting 100,000 cases a day. That's a lot, historically speaking. 
And I know one point, as you know, it's about a million. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we're looking at, 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 at probably close to a million a day. Just just what I'm seeing in our own students, they're just getting antigen tests. Uh, people our age are just getting antigen tests. One of my one of my one of my friends who's uh, who's a physician is just recovering. I also antigen test not reported anywhere. Um, they know they have covid for all their obvious reasons. And uh, I think the CDC is, is seeing just a fraction of the cases that we know exist. Um, although if you do get Pavlovid, Paxlovid, you do need to report your case. So I think in the, what you're really seeing is a, a preponderance of people in the upper ages of the spectrum getting it, uh, reporting it, not getting it. It's, it's everywhere. Um, but uh, it, uh, and I think those death rates are, are, are actually pretty good. They're not more than what you'd see in a typical flu season from the flu. So it's good. As a matter of fact, I think it's very possible that the death rate is much lower than the flu right now, that if that right. number of people got the flu, it would be, we could easily see more than, I think you quoted the number for year for two or last three years or so that we get, you know, 30 to 50,000 deaths on an average flu season, but that's on a much lower big N. If that yeah. big N was multiplied by 10, we might have a lot more flu deaths. But let me also yeah. say the next thing that kind of caught my eye. So I went to the same data set and it talks about hospitalizations. What's fascinating here is that below the age of 70, the curves are very flat, maybe a 10 to 20% increase. But for those 70 and up, hospitalizations have literally gone up 5X in the last three months. Does that surprise you at all? Not, because, not that older people, you've talked about it from the beginning, age is the number one factor, and then the number two factor is age, and the number three factor is age. But the fact that the delta, if you'd like, is so big between over 70 and below 70, does that surprise you at all? I guess, you know, I have to say, you know, once you see the data, it's, it's easy to, to tell a story around it, to, to act not surprised. Um, if you had asked me to forecast it, I, I might have come up with something different. So I would say I am a little surprised, not hugely surprised, because I think that the protection that the vaccine had, had, had offered was always, always overstated. I mean, we were seeing statements like 99% um, protection from serious illness. And I don't think it ever was that. I think it was, it was probably in the, in the range of a, a robust eight to nine times uh, 90%, 80 to 90%, but not 99. Yeah, people and, also forget, as you know, these, these, these things are odds. If someone says it's 99%, that's almost 100 to 1, as yeah. opposed to 90%, which is 9 to 1. Right. So I'm just commenting that, yeah. you know, it, it's, those are very, very different numbers from a very ratio different. perspective. Right. And I think that that when you are over 70, and most of the over probably over those hospitalizations, probably over 80, I think, you know, COVID is a very serious disease, regardless of your vaccination status. And I think that probably um, uh, we're seeing particularly it's a very contagious um, variant. I, uh, I don't have I personally don't have very, very many very. I only have two elderly relatives um, alive, um, but my wife knows a few has some has more and, and they're getting COVID now. Um, and a lot of them were conscientious and you can't live your, you can't live the little life you have remaining inside. Um, and with a, oh. with a variant like this, um, 
We know people that we know have done very well and have recovered. Our president is uh, 79 years old and has COVID. I don't think he's likely to have a, a bad outcome. I, I haven't heard an update. What is his current status? I guess it's pretty uh, good. Improving, at least they say improving dramatically. Of course, not surprisingly, the minute he had symptoms, he started taking Paxlovid. And so uh, right now, every indication is that his symptoms are improving. Right. Actually, my friend, uh, who's exactly our age, uh, had, was pretty sick. I mean, high fever, bad cough. And his doctor uh, didn't actually, he asked for Paxlovid. The doctor said, nope, not, not going to prescribe it for you. You're, you're better today than when you were yesterday. It's not really a serious, you should, you'll be fine. And there are people who do worry about the, the, what they call the, the bounce back Paxlovid. Yeah, exactly. Then, like it basically, uh, it's suppressing, but it's not actually curing anything it's not right. actually lowering your viral load it's a suppression device and that the bounce back can be worse right and, and i think for people who are for youngish people and i'd like to think of ourselves as youngish right um Ish. We probably don't need it. <laughs> so let me all right let me go to another one so i also looked at the data on this people that the, this is report on the cdc site again what fraction of people over 50 we're the only ones that are now technically eligible for the second booster and immunocompromised um, it turns out only about 30% of people 50 plus have gotten a second booster, which means four shots. So from your opinion, based on the data you've seen, I have a two-part question. Is that a mistake? In other words, should a larger fraction of people 50 plus have gotten a second booster? And I don't ask you, not, I'm asking your personal opinion. I'm saying weighing the risks associated with it, but also with the preventative effects where we have Israeli data that does suggest about at least let me just say the indirect effect, meaning the number of antibody production, it doesn't necessarily directly oh, correlate with protection. Israeli that, data is better than that. It actually has positive mortality. Uh, oh, okay. Impact. So given that data, but also, well, let me ask that question. Then I want to ask a question to you about how would you compute a counterfactual? Like how many could, how could you estimate how many deaths might be saved if 90% of people over 50 had gotten a second booster? And is that calculation even possible? But let me talk about the first one. What, what does the data suggest? Should people over the age of 50 who are eligible, which is all of us, should it be, are you surprised the number is only 30% and do you wish it were larger from a life-saving perspective? Well, 50, you're using 50 because that's the CDC recommendation. I think that's a bad cutoff. I think that the Israeli data and other, other uh, uh, common sense uh, understanding suggests that there's a big difference between 70 and up and 50 and up. 50 to 70 is very different from 70 to and up. And the population bolus is much larger between 30 to se- 50 to 70 than it is to 70 and up. So if that 30% is m- almost all the 80s, and a much bigger chunk of the 70s to 80s and only very, very, very few of the lower ones, then I wouldn't say it's such a big, we're not such a bad shape. If it was sort of uniformly 30 across the board. Right, which I know I you have, don't, right. Then I would say that, that, that people over 70 should, who, have, who have certainly over 70 have not gotten the illness at all, they should be getting their fourth, their fourth uh, shot, their second booster. And probably anyone over 60 who has not gotten their, um, who, has gotten, who has not gotten the illness the, 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 the question is, that, um, is, is if you've been diagnosed with COVID already and you're under 70, I would argue that's probably not necessary and that there's another booster coming around the corner that is more tailored to a, a more specific variant and that you probably should hang out to that. So I'm not, I, I, so it's a mistake. Do you, have some, any but- cons- do you have any concerns? Um, I know we've had people on before, but as they, now we're two and a half, three years, two and a half plus years into it. Do you have any concerns about, so I'll just speak to myself. I've gotten my fourth shot. 
when the fifth shot comes, or it, let's call it not the fifth shot, the BA5 variant or the universal variant one, I'm planning on getting that one too. Should I have mm-hmm. any worries that I've got too much vaccine in me? Well, have you seen any data to suggest there should be a concern? Yes, I have seen some of that data. And the problem is the data's crap. Because <laughs> all the data's crap. It's just riddled with, with, with confounding. None of it is experimental. It's all observational, but does see there is sources obviously riddled with confounding, but it's still a pretty big difference that places like England, there's many more cases among per person among the vaccinated than the unvaccinated. Um, And that, of course, is terrible data because of confounding of age and status and illness and type. But I I, I did see and this is something that has occurred in other other viruses that there is often and it's been seen before uh, uh, almost a reverse reaction to a, a vaccine that it makes you more susceptible to the virus rather than less. Um, and the reason why I pointed out is that Fauci talked about this at great length before the trials had come in about COVID vaccine. In other words, he was saying one of the reasons why it's going to take a while before we have a vaccine, this is well before it was, it was finished, is that you've got to be sure that the vaccine doesn't actually increase the, the rate of well, infection. Why would it show that? that. Um, I don't know the biology of that. And in fact, that's something to investigate. Um, But it has happened. Apparently, we've observed this in other viruses already. Um, There's and he he, I listened to this and he was talking about medical terms that I wasn't aware of. But one of them was HIV. The other was a a sort of a respiratory virus that people get um, that they have tried to develop vaccines for them, but they gave them out. And it turns out there was more infection rather than less. So it's not an unknown thing. And it's something that's a concern. And some of the data suggests that that may or may not be possible. Um, so I don't know. It's something to, to potentially uh, wonder about. Uh, in our age, there doesn't seem to be any any noticeable side effects. But for younger people, there quite clearly is side effects. There's more and more data showing that particularly for young men, um, the myocarditis, pericarditis stuff is something that comes up. Um, and it's not it's right. not so infrequent. And uh, and each booster shot is more exposure. Um so I, I wouldn't I wouldn't be rushing to take 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 another uh, booster and and maybe there's a concern about a fifth one, um, but that's something that um, again I think infection status that seems to be holding up um, and there's more and more data that suggest now that so many people are getting it that prior infection is just a particularly when combined with vaccination is a is a is a is a good as anything if not the best thing to have to prevent serious illness. So here we're here on Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing Statistics and Data Science. And I'm here with my co-host today, Adi Weiner, Professor of Statistics and Data Science. And again, some combination of us, Shane Jensen and Kate Massey here every week on Wharton Moneyball. We're still in our first segment talking about COVID. So Adi, I know you said a couple of things that caught your eye, a couple of small things that caught your eye in COVID this week. Uh, you want to bring it up to our Listeners uh, here I, on Morton Moneyball. But honestly, I think I just covered them. Incidentally, I oh. talked about some of the new data. I saw one of the things that caught my eye was the new data suggesting that there's more and more compelling evidence that that among young people in particular, there is uh, um, um, I- incidence of risk. The other thing that potentially caught my eye that I didn't mention is the vaccine uptake among under fives is practically non-existent. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not entirely surprised by that. Um, it might change when the school year comes around. But right. either way, um, yeah, I mean, I think I, I'm not surprised by by kind of that finding that there hasn't been a massive uptake in the zero to five group. And I, and I yeah. don't know. Yeah, that, that's not that surprising, given the data we have now. It is actually one thing you do see. So the greatest, some the, the states where the most uptake is around 10. 
10 to 15 percent um, and the least it's like practically zero. I see. Well, um, hopefully, you know, we'll con- well, I, it's interesting. Um, hopefully we'll have continue to get better and better data on COVID. Um, and I'm also hoping, I think, and I say this from a selfish perspective, while I've enjoyed talking about COVID for the next last two and a half years, I'm sure there will become a time on Wharton Moneyball where um, if there will only be talking about it, if there's something brand new, because right now um, I don't say we're in a holding pattern, but there's not a lot new until either a massive new study comes in with new data, or there's some massive change in the trajectory of the, of the, illness right now. Right now, I think things are in a pretty stable, but I would call it, I think you would agree, slightly increasing holding pattern because N is getting big again. Big N's getting big again. P is getting smaller, but N's just getting bigger at a much faster rate. And it doesn't seem like, as you said, unless we're going to a lockdown again, which we both agree is a bad idea for lots of other reasons, um, big N's just going up faster than P is going down. And that's it. That's, that's what's, and that's what you get. That's right. And yeah, all right. that's all right. Well, that's been the first, not first quarter of Wharton Moneyball, but that's been our COVID segment. So, Adi, we still have time in our first segment. So, you know, I, I'd like to start us off in the, you know, if you'd like the second part of the first segment here. Uh, yesterday was a big day for me and my uh, son. Uh, you know, it's it's always a big day when it's a uh, Hall of Fame weekend in the Bradlow family. One of the nicest things my family ever gave me as a gift was a lifetime membership to the Hall of Fame. So I get to go to the Hall of Fame ceremony every year. Uh, last year, of course, was Derek Jeter. So that was a big year. But I'm wearing my Yankee garb, and I don't care who's going into the Hall of Fame. <laughs> I said, so I'm, I'm wearing my, and of course, my son, Zach, who you know well, he was wearing his Phillies gear, which is great. He's a Phillies fan. Um, but I was at the Hall of Fame yesterday, and I wanted to talk to you about a couple things that struck me at the Hall of Fame. And then I'd like to hear your thoughts also about the potentials of other people going into the Hall of Fame. So here were the four major people that went into the Hall of Fame, although there were some others that made some significant contributions to breaking the racial barrier, et cetera. The first one I want to talk to you about is Jim Cott. Now, you know, since we're the same age, you remember Jim Cott during his years. Matter of fact, he pitched forever in the major leagues. Uh, Let me just point out, uh, Eric, that, you know, you and I both were introduced to statistics in baseball, in particular through the baseball card. Um, Absolutely. and the back of the baseball card had their lifetime statistic. But when we were kids, Jim Cott was still pitching and he was really at towards the end of a career that began probably, you know, I, I mean, I remember the back of his card, the print was so tiny because he pr- pitched for so many years. You know, it was unbelievable. It was, it was distinct from any other pitcher. Well, he pitched, he pitched 25 seasons. He pitched from 59, 59, 59, yes. 83. Right. So, you know, he was on the Cardinal team that won the World Series. That was his only World Series win was his last year was the 82, 83 uh, was 83 Cardinal team. Um, But I want to ask you, I'm surprised he's 82 or 83 years old now. I'm surprised he wasn't in the Hall of Fame earlier. And let me say why. Well, this is, by the way, a Veterans Committee. Hey, yeah, the only the only person that got voted in by the sports writers was Big Poppy, David Ortiz. Yeah. We'll get to him in a second. Jim Cott has 16 gold gloves, 283 wins, and had three 20-win seasons. So are you at all surprised that the Veterans Committee, at least, didn't put him into the Hall of Fame sooner? Well, I guess, again, in yes and no. So uh, yes, because he has had an incredible career. No, because I don't know enough about the, the Veterans Perce- uh, Committee's kind of approach to feel like 
It's something that's understood. So I feel like I understand the sports writer and who gets in on the first round, the second round, the fifth round, have to wait till well, the Let me end. ask you a question now. Suppose there were a pitcher that, I forget 25 years. Let's say someone only pitched 17 or only 17 or 18 years, had 16 gold gloves, 283 wins, and multiple 20-win seasons. You agree that pitcher would get into the Hall of Fame right now? Uh, sure. Well, we don't, see, we don't see that kind of production anymore with the short se- careers and the, and the early, early hooks. So, yeah, absolutely. Got a question. Yeah, this is one of those cases. The reason I brought up Jim Codd, it's one of those cases where I'm pretty sure the denominator hurt him. Like, if you look at his totals and just scrubbed away that it was over, like, 80,000 innings and three, yeah, 3 million right. games, you know, 283 wins right now. I mean, there's, I'm not convinced there's anybody pitching to him. My son and I were having a debate about whether Justin Verlander has a chance to get the 300 wins. He has 239, but he's 39 years old. Why don't we skip, just let me take a tangent for a second. No In chance. your view, there's no chance. Justin no Verlander chance. can't he can't be Nolan Ryan and pitched. He's got he's got the most wins in the major leagues this year at 13. Mm-hmm. Let's say he gets five more, 244. Justin Verlander can't pitch four more years till he's 43 and win 56 games. Yeah, uh, no, only in the sense that what's happening this year is an extraordinary season. It's got to regress to the mean going forward and regress hard. If he if he wins 12 games in each of the next two or three seasons, that would be impressive. And pitchers just don't go to 42, 43. I mean, I shouldn't say that. Jim Cat went to 46 what, or however he was. Yeah, and Nolan Ryan. Uh, I mean, why can't Verlander be the next Nolan Ryan? He's still throwing 100. It, it, yeah, it's it, – it's, it's, when I say no chance, I don't mean no chance. I mean – I'd no put chance. It, I, I put it as a very, very small number. 300 is still a long way for a 39-year-old in today's game. You know, Mike Messina's last career uh, year as a Yankee, he threw 20 game, went 120 for the first time. Remember that? No, that, uh, was, that was from – well, we're, I want to get to something in just a second about that. So yeah. the next guy that got in was a guy also sort of – he was pretty much done when we were little kids, was Tony Oliva. Yeah. yeah. And what was interesting about Oliva – was I didn't realize he led the league in hits five times, batting average three times, and had a 304 lifetime batting average. Now, right. he didn't do it for that long, but mm-hmm. I didn't have a problem with Tony Oliva getting into the Hall of Fame, like in the sense of he was a very good hitter for 10 seasons. That's right, but he was never the best hitter. Never. And Jim Cott was never the best pitcher. And Jim Cott even uh, said in his speech, yeah. they're rewarding longevity. I that's was right. pretty good to very good for a lot of years. And, and that, that's but what that they reward. itself is Hall of Fame worthy to do that for 25 years. You know, we always talk about it's a, it's a combination of a, of, of a peak performance versus some longevity. But every now and then you get a Jim Cotton where the longevity itself is so extreme, it's worthy of recognition. But I, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm happy that it took the Veterans Committee some time to do it because these things should really be, they're very different um, kind of recognition. Than, than the kind of recognition that we typically uh, like to like to uh, award. But Tony Oliver, 10 years, he was never the best either. And, and I don't think even close to the best. No, not never close to the best. He was never close to the best. But he was just a very good hitter. The yeah. next one I want to talk about was Gil Hodges. Now, they said a stat at the Hall of Fame ceremony so that, that surprised me. I think I'm going to vote. I'm, well, I don't vote. But if I, I'm going to vote with my voice on Wharton Moneyball. Anybody that meets the following criterion, I think I'm an offensive player. I think I'm going to say deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. Gil Hodges in the 1950s had 300 home runs and 1,000 RBIs. That's my new criterion. 
if someone has 300 home runs and I think you're on mute. If someone has 300 home runs, a thousand RBIs in a 10 year stretch, I think they deserve to be in the hall of fame. What's your response to that? Ah, uh, what do I think? Um, so they average 30 uh, and 100 over a 10-year period. 30 and 100 over a 10-year period. I guess if you can couple that with some two or three of those seasons that you're the best in the league, some MVPs. Well, Gil I Hodges, I don't know that Gil Hodges ever won the MVP award. I don't think so. And I don't think he was ever the great, you know, even the Well, luckily, remember, he was playing with Jackie Robinson, Campanella, yeah. Don Drysdale, yeah. Sandy Covey. He was on, he wasn't even the best player on his team. Yeah, not, not even, even close. close. I think this is a sentimental pick. Um, do I argue? Well, more? well, did uh, I, I've just given it away. Did you know? I, I had forgotten this. Did you know he was the coach of the 69 Mets? Uh, I think I knew that. I think I knew that because of my baseball card collection. Um, but 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 I think I knew that. But I wouldn't have get, I wouldn't have guessed it. But I think when you told me that, I'm like, I think I see that. So to that. me, you combine that with the obviously he he died at a very young age, very yeah. young age. He died in I think 72 or 73. They said uh, he's right. been dead for 50 years. Um, uh, Matt, thanks to our producer Matt Datz, his highest MVP vote for Gil Hodges was seven. So no, he was never. I mean, he was never anywhere near the best player in the league. I just again, you talk about to me 300 home runs and a thousand RBIs. I think they said he had like one of the highest totals in the 1950s. Like for the decade of the 1950s, Gil Hodges was a, I don't know, he was sort of great. He was a very, very good player. I had no problem with him going into the Hall of Fame. Okay. Let All me right. talk about the last one, Big Poppy. Let me tell you something. Let me tell you what shocked me. I, I put it in our rundown so you've seen the numbers. Yep. Do you know that Big Poppy had an OPS of over one his last season? Oh yes, oh yes. Remember, we talked about him when we were uh, when we were discussing his his potential election. Yes, this guy. No, went but out I mean, he had thirty eight homers, one hundred and twenty seven RBIs, and yep. an OPS of one point oh two one. To me, that's the greatest finishing season of all time of any player ever in their last season. Yeah, well, maybe we're certainly relative to their career. It's one of his best seasons ever. One of his best seasons ever. And they asked yep. him actually why he retired, and he Pete, said, right? "What." His feet. I thought he could. Yeah, he just said he would have to show up at noon to get ready for a 7 p.m. game. He said the amount of work it took him just to play baseball any single day was so immense that it just wasn't worth it anymore to him, despite he produced a great season. Yeah, it's actually really interesting um, that you say that. I mean, I I wonder. So this is a similar uh, early early, earlier exit was Joe DiMaggio, who went out in his uh, 35th year. Um, because he was in too much pain, also relating to his feet. I, yeah, I think people, that... always, people always forget uh, DiMaggio, you mean age 35. DiMaggio, age 35. Yeah, DiMaggio only played for 13 seasons. That's right. He, and, you know, people say, oh, he only had 361 home runs and this and that. Yeah, but he didn't play 20 seasons. Give him seven more seasons, and I'm sure DiMaggio would have hit 50 home, uh, 500 home runs. I mean, he just did not play that long. Right. And he also had he had he, he did lose years to the to the war as well. Uh, right. right. But and each year was just, you know, incredible. I, he's someone I would check before I make venture to see. I'd love what his, to see what his last year was. I doubt it was it was as superlative because he recognized he was not doing well in his 35th, 35th year of age um, and, and needed to get out. But he was one who saw the writing. on. I the don't wall know. All I'm saying is 
38-127, an OPS of 1.021 at age. I think Big Pop right. was 40 or something. That's a hell of a final year. I mean, that's... Right, well, I have a baseball one um, right. that's uh, not related to the Hall of Fame, but it's a puzzle for you. I saw it. I was watching the Yankee game yesterday. I, I tried to catch some portion of almost every Yankee game, either by audio or by or by on TV or video. Um, and a stat was tossed out, and I went and je- checked it. And I'll, I'll lead it like this. Uh, who do you think in the American League, who would you who do you think baseball perspective currently names as the uh, the top four war leaders, which is now just for our listeners, war means wins above replacement. And it's becoming much more widespread as a sort of catch all all the aspects of your of your performance goes into one number. It has lots of components to it that adjust for your position and your park and um, the quality of the other players around you. Anyway. It's who are the top four? Who are the top four players in the American League? And I give okay, you a number gonna, one. You better get this right away. Well, I'm I'm going to guess Aaron Judge has got to be right. number. Aaron Judge, uh, Shohei Otani's got to be up there because he hits and pitches. So I think Shohei is in the top four. Yep. I think. Well, I just don't know if Mike Trout played enough to. Still he's be not. In the he's top been injured, and, and, and but I'm, I'm not going to. It's not really that. What's not that interesting is who it is, but who is included in it is another Yankee. And I was shocked at this, and I wanted to use this as a jumping point for talking about war. Which well, other think- Yankees in the top four American League, according to baseball perspectives, and a little lower according to Fangraphs, but but uh, and according to whatever they showed on the on the Yankee broadcast. I just was- forget there are three. I can't be a pitcher. There were three Yankees with twenty home runs. Stanton's the other, and then I forget who the third was. It's uh, whoever that uh, third Rizzo? Yankee. What Rizzo has has, uh, but n- no, they're not. The other person who and this yes is DJ LeMahieu. You know LeMahieu has started playing better again, but not like the seasons of LeMahieu three or four years ago, where he was so LeMay really on what and basis this, is this, this makes war me so great? start to wonder what the hell is in this war box, this right. black box, and black box statistical term for when data goes in and you can't see what the what the juice is and out right. comes. Um, as opposed to some sort of linear combination or some formula that you can see what's happening. This goes in a black box, it comes out a number, and we're supposed to accept it. And I'm looking at it and going, nothing against DJ LeMayu, but is he genuinely the fourth best player in the American League by an all-around statistic like that? Or are we looking at some kind of strangeness? And 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 one of the things, of course, is defense. And what, what D, DJ LeMayu does is, is, is he's constantly playing. He plays every position in the infield. Um, and we I can see. see the advantage of that for the Yankees to be able to platoon adjust, to give players rest, to move people through the lineup. And one of the things that we, we brought in, we brought in some, some uh, very knowledgeable people for Moneyball Academy, people work for teams, and they, they talk about how a small market team, where do they carve out extra wins? And one of the places they do that is not in stars, but in making the best use of the players you can get. And one of the ways to do that is to, to essentially buy versatility, which turns out to be pretty cheap. It's a, it's a classic money ball moment. Um, players who can play multiple position free you up to get some of these, these competitive matchups um, more often in play than when you have big stars that you kind of have to play every day and can't move positions and have to take day off, days off. It, 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 it's under the rubric. Uh, big question that I like to ask is why are the angels so bad when they have arguably the two best players in major league baseball. And the answer is because of what they're doing with everybody else. They can't even play at average with those. They're way below. Most of their other players are not even doing replacement level 
And that's uh, just a, a just bad management. Okay, so Adi, maybe just in the last minute or two, we have just sticking with baseball and sticking with the Hall of Fame. Um, here are the people, and literally in the last minute or two, um, here are the people that are eligible for next year's Hall of Fame. Now, some of these are returning people. I'll just name the top five, top seven, top eight, and or even I don't know. I got to go to ten, and you tell me if you think any of these people are getting into the Hall of Fame. Scott Rowland, sixty-three point two. No, okay. Todd Helton, no. DH. Billy, all right, so now we're going down. Billy Wagner. Oh, God, no. Andrew Jones. No. And then he's, you have... he's, he's making a stronger case every year, but not yet. Okay. And then we have a guys that have all concerns for other things. Gary Sheffield, A-Rod, Jeff Kent, Manny Ramirez, Omar Vizquel, Andy Pettit. So there may not, let's assume, by the way, those are it. None of the returning people. The only person who's now eligible for the first time who may get in next year, you can make it, Carlos Beltran. Interesting case. Um, you know, such great postseason heroics. Um, good player. 430, 435 home runs, 1,587 RBIs, 2,700 hits, 279 lifetime batting average, 837. So I, I don't know. I mean, you know, this is – and his war, by the way, his career war, speaking of war, his career war is 70. That's, that's a higher than – that's a good mark, right? Not bad. Not bad. By the way, it's not bad at all. Either way, uh, you agree. I may be. I may be there with a bunch of veterans committee choices next year at the hall. That's of Fame. right. You might be very that we zeros. You know, have been around. Uh, uh, you know, a rod is 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 too bad. He did he did very poorly. I think in his first season. Relative 30, to his second year, he, he, he's now done two years, and he's at thirty four point three percent. And I just don't. Yeah, I don't think he's ever going to make it. I mean, I, which is really sad. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I mean, I would have voted in Clemens and Bonds in their last seasons. Yeah, um, now, but what's actually interesting, and again, we'll just spend just a few seconds on it. The problem now is, if you ha- given you haven't let Bonds and Clemens in, you, you know, on what basis do you justify letting in other people suspect, suspicious or used? performance-enhancing drugs, who had much worse careers than them by definition because nobody had the career of Bonds or Clemens. And right. so my, now my, my, my argument is one we've shared on our show before is these guys were Hall of Fame worthy before they took... No, no, no. I'm not saying not to let them in. But how yeah. do you let in, let's say, A-Rod with, and then Bonds isn't in? That's my concern, is that if you're going to be yeah. at least yeah. consistent, you can't yeah. let A-Rod in if you don't let in Barry Bonds. That's all I'm right. commenting. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, this has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We have a lot to talk about. We're still talking about baseball. We've got a lot of golf, and uh, we have NFL. We have in our last segment today, we have Eric Eager from Pro Football Focus. Please stay with us and join us right after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where my three favorite topics of statistics, sports, and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics and Data Science, and I'm here with my co-host today, Adi Weiner, Professor of Statistics and Data Science. And we're here again on the Wharton Moneyball podcast edition here on Sirius XM 132. Uh, some combination of the two of us, Shane Jensen and Kate Massey, are here every week here on the podcast edition. And so uh, Adi and I just finished talking about a little bit about COVID and how, in some sense, big N is up, way, way up. P is down, but you multiply those two together. And so, you know, that leads to increased deaths. Um, I just gave my Hall of Fame experience. We were talking about Jim Cott, kind of, you know, 
just playing 25 years is impressive. We talked about Tony Oliva, Gil Hodges, David Ortiz. We talked about 2023 Hall of Fame potentials. Adi sprinkled in a little bit of war there and our concerns about war. But Adi, you also mentioned during the break, you had something else about the Hall of Fame you wanted to talk I have about. One we'll thing. talk a little bit about a little more baseball here to finish out the second quarter of our Yeah, well, I just, I, I spent the weekend in Baltimore and um, they had named a, a road after Brooks Robinson called Brooks Robinson Parkway. Terrific, obviously amazing player, Hall of Famer, but it was an access road to a highway. And my feeling is that's disrespectful, an access road. Come on, Mike Schmidt gets a highway. Uh, uh, Brooks Robinson should do better. City of Baltimore, up your game. That was my, that was my well, observation. Well, we, we both agree that Brooks Robinson is um, an elite Hall of Famer, one of the great Hall of Famers. That's and, right. Uh, certainly deserves uh, every recognition that he can get. <laughs> So Staying with the, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Staying with the uh, MLB, I had some things I put in the rundown I'd love your thought about. So, you know, we're now 60% of the way into the season for the Yankees. Exactly 60%. They played 97 games. 60% of 162 is 97.2. Aaron Judge has 37 home runs. He's on pace for 62, and he's actually been fairly consistent. Maybe a little bit early in the season, he was on a 64 pace, but he's on a 62 pace. I'm asking you right now, 60% of the season, couple of questions. And I'll ask them in a rapid fire kind of way. What's your final prediction and why? Okay. All right. So um, uh, my final position, I'd actually have to do the, do the numbers to figure it out, but I would probably guess that he's got about 20 home runs in him for the rest of the season. And let me tell you why I was going to say the same number, which gets him to 57, which is obviously an all-time great season. Let me say why I was going to guess that, Adi. Yeah. Let's okay. say his let's say his he's hitting at a 62 pace, but let's say his true pace is really 50. He's just got some random noise thrown in. Well, he's got 40 percent of the season left on a 50 home run season. So now I'm going to take the 37 he's hit and add 0.4 times 50 to that. And so therefore that gets him to 57. And so it's hard to argue his true ability. You know, this, you know, the favorites, my favorite equation is, you know, the Thurstone equation, observed score equals true score plus error. So we're observing his observed score, 37 home runs right now, which is his true rate plus some error. We both believe, obviously, there's some sort of positive residual going on right now. But it's hard to argue that his true rate, which is unobservable, is less than a 50 home run pace this season. So, 40% of a 50 home run season gives him 20 more. It's hard to argue against a number around 57. Does right, that logic work the, for you? It's got, yeah, it works. I'm going to throw in another one. I'm going to channel my inner, inner, inner Shane Jensen right now. There's got to be a, a significant probability he misses a week or two to some kind of yeah. strain um, of some kind. Cause they often happens, right? These, these immense uh, uh, human beings with big muscles and, and stuff. Um, well, let me ask you a question. Do the Yankees, start to rest him more if number one it's well this i'll get to that let me ask it now in the second way does it matter to you as a yankee fan and this was my second thing in the rundown do the yankees care to have a better record than the astros does it matter to you that they get home field if they play the astros and if that becomes one way or the other it's a two-part question but it's really the same question let's say the yankees right now who are very only a game up of the astros in the loss column Let's say we get way up. You could see resting judge. We get way down to the Astros, but we've already clinched the two spot. They rest judge. How important to you do you think is 
home field throughout the playoffs. And by the way, the Yankees don't have the fewest losses anymore. The Dodgers do. The Dodgers only have 30 losses. The Yankees are at 31 and the Astros are at 32. How well, important it, is home field, do you think? Uh, you know, I don't think home field, home field is that important. Um, it is certainly not that important that you're going to, you're not going to rest players if they genuinely need it. It just isn't. I mean, home field advantage in the, across the season is 52.5% advantage. Um, and you were talking in a playoffs, it's, it's, it only comes down to the last game. Essentially it's, it's uh, two, then three, then two. Um, so it's very, 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 very small. Um, it's certainly worth playing for to a degree, but not a lot. And that, that's how I would, I would envision it, but they've been resting Stanton and judge already pretty substantially. Stanton didn't play all the weekend. Um, and, and allegedly not even going back in until Tuesday. Um, and they lost a game. Well, the biggest problem the Yankees have been recently is they've got a, a, a befuddled bullpen. Yeah, um, losing, losing King and having Chapman come back only to pitch terribly um, has been terrible for them. I mean, you, you brought in a, a, a star, allegedly historically star pitcher who's just been terrible. So let me ask you, if you had to, what odds would you make it that Judge gets to 60 home runs right now? 20%. That's the number I was going to think. But 50 home runs? Oh, 50, I would say, is about uh, 75 to 80%. I would, agree with, I would agree with that. Um, and uh, more, I mean, I mean the, my point estimate is probably 57, 58. But let me ask you something. How important is it for his historic legacy? 60 is a, is a magic number in baseball. Oh, man. That is that. that let, let me ask you a different question. Let's assume for the moment that perform enhancing drugs are out of baseball. Okay. Yep. If he gets to beyond Roger Maris in 61, is there some, will there be some argument that he's a legitimate home run champion? Of course there'll be. And, and, and we're all going to make it and it'll be legitimate. It won't get, it won't get an asterisk or, or it won't be recognized officially as the, as the record, but, it, but to anyone who cares, we'll think of it as such. And it will be a enormous, um, feather in his cap and it'll be a big plus towards his hall of fame candidacy even though he's not even he's 30 years old and he's got to do this for another five to seven years more before we even begin to think about it having the the uh the shadow hall of fame um i mean all-time record for a single season would be an amazing accomplishment hard to look away i i agree with that all right let's go to the following um let's stick in the al east i noticed something just now and up until a couple a week ago it was true for all the teams Every team in the AL East may end up over 500. Yeah. Have you? That, um, yeah, I mean, remember. And let's remember, they all play these. each other. They all play each other. I think it's 19 times. Yeah. So how remarkable would it be if everybody in the AL East ended up over 500? Uh, I, I can't. I mean, certainly amazing, but not. I mean, the Orioles still. I mean, come on. Really? <laughs> Well, sixty percent uh, of the season's gone. They're one game below five hundred. Right, I know. I, I'd still be surprised if they'd make it. Um, but wow, I mean, it just shows there's this, and there's three divisions. So you still have two other divisions with with, with lots of pretty bad teams that we do get. They all get to play. Um, and no, other than the Yankees, the other three teams are not like not like particularly great. Um, so it's not like there's two teams that are vying. There's no, there's no one kind of competing with the Yankees. Um, like you're seeing some of that in the other divisions. So, uh, you know, it's 50 is an arbitrary number. If there's a lot of, if there's a lot of compaction uh, or uh, not much variance, you can, you can easily put five teams in one group and they have, uh, they all have greater than uh, um, 500 record. 
I look, I think I talked about this. You, you obviously weren't on the show when uh, my friend and our co-host and friend, uh, Dan Schwab, hosted with me. I think you could make an argument that as surprisingly good as the Yankees season is this year, the Orioles season is as surprisingly good. Would you agree with that? If they end up winning as eight, surprisingly plus, good, if no. the Yankees win 80 plus, if, sorry, the Orioles win 80 plus games. Well, it's almost in keeping with what we saw with the Giants, right? The Giants, when they went to the World Series, um, they were, uh, boy, they were, uh, were they in the World Series? No, they made it to the, to the final round. But my God, they were way ahead of their expectations. I mean, they were expecting over 20 wins. I think they were predicted in the 70s and won like 105 or whatever number. Yeah, so they were they may have had one of the most unexpected seasons ever. Um, The Orioles were supposed to be spectacularly bad. But given the regression to the mean prior season forecast, they probably were forecasted to uh, win maybe 70 games. Was that I don't know what it is. And so if they end up at 81, they're only half of what you're seeing from the Giants. Well, so. well, let me ask you a question. How would you measure, like the normal way, as you know, that we measure extremeness in statistics is you have an observed number. Z-score, you have an right? expected number. You, you Z-score mm-hmm. it. Is yeah. that, so how would you think about that in this case? Like, like does everybody get this? Let me ask you a question. The standard deviation on the distribution depends on where you are on the distribution. So yes. what I mean by that is if the Yankees who are projected, let's say to win 95 and they're winning 115, that you would agree. It's a discrepancy observed, observed minus expected is 20 in your mind. Can you explain to our listeners why that could be a lot more impressive than the Orioles who maybe were projected to win 65, win 85. And why is that true? Well, the thing is, is that the reason why is, is the asymmetry. So the Yankees really can't win that much more than 95. 95 is so good that the, the, real, the real variance is on the downside, not on the upside. So beating a bad, bad result is kind of going with regression. Um, overperforming a top result is going against regression. Great so point. That, that, that becomes really rare. Um, I'm not sure the standard deviation is that different, considering that they can t- they can catastrophizely. I mean, standard deviation is is uh, indifferent to direction, right? And uh, uh, a, 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 there are lots of top teams or predicted top teams that end up doing pretty badly. So I bet we see more negative results than we see positive results. And that's well, let me why- ask you, but let me ask you a general question about that. Yeah, st- everything you've said is obviously statistically true. If I had asked you at the beginning of the season to say the Yankees will win 95 games plus or minus X and the Orioles will win 75 games plus or minus Y, you would not necessarily have set X equal to Y. Is that correct? No, but I don't think I'd make them that different. Not as different. I, I just don't think that would have been that. I'm not even sure what I would have done, what, what the variance is. I do know that the... I well, don't by the way, to... is there any reason you couldn't do the following? Let's take, I mean, let's be, let's not even be statisticians, although we could. Let's just be, empir- be brute force empiricists. I look at all historical seasons where people have been predicted to compute 95 games, compute the distribution, look at the standard deviation of that distribution. Mm-hmm. There mm-hmm. we go. I do the same for 75. I just observe if they're different. I hope I have lots and lots of games, uh, seasons, and I hope I have a lot of recent ones because things could have changed over time. And that's my point estimate. That's one way to do it. Of course, another way to do it is to actually build a predictive model for wins and then get some sort of standard or mean squared error or prediction out of yep. that model. Right. Yeah. I actually done that. And the RMSE, which is the root square root of the, of the, of the I mean, it's the mean squared error. Uh, 
is a pretty looks like it's pretty constant. Although I haven't really looked at it carefully. Remember, there aren't that many at the ninety five range, so it, you have less data. But it just doesn't look like it, it's that homo, uh, heteroscedastic is what we describe in statistics for variance that depends on the, the the value of the of the prediction or the value of the input. Uh, it doesn't look to be that heteroscedastic. Uh, the, what the question is: What is the 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 RMSE on a forecast? And I bet the RMSE on the forecast is at least um, seven or eight, if not more. Wins. So that should uh, be clear. That means a ninety. Wait, wait, it can't be that high. Oh, oh the RMSE. But that, yeah. you're saying the square root. You're saying then that a, a ninety-five. If I took the square root of RMSE as an estimate of sigma, which standard mm-hmm. deviation, which is that's what we do, yep. then you're saying that plus or minus fifteen, like the, like a team yeah, that's yeah, predicted exactly that yeah. wide. And remember, a ninety-five. If you're a, pro, a, pro, a team that's predicted to win ninety-five games, is an extraordinary team to predict ninety-five. Um, it's and 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 if yeah, I think fifteen would be a, a, a one in fifty event. Fifteen more than that, so one hundred and ten games. That's like a, that would be a generational um, victory. No, no, right? I just meant you would construct a ninety-five yes. percent confidence prediction interval. Prediction interval. Prediction interval. Oh, sorry, prediction interval between yep. eighty and one hundred and ten. It would be that wide. Yes, I would. I think that's what would be needed. I'd love to check that, and I have that data, and I can check that. Well, let and me ask. You, I'm gonna. I'm yes. gonna ask. Put, put out a request for all of our listeners on Wharton Moneyball. Please tweet at us at W Moneyball or send us an email at moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu to do exactly the prediction that Audie's just asked for. If you happen to be a listener and love to do sports and analytics like we do, send us a look at all the seasons where it doesn't have to be exactly 95 wins. Let's spin it between. I don't know. 90 and 100 wins send us a prediction interval like how much how wide an interval would i need to do to cover 95 percent of those seasons and Adi's making so, a prediction uh, so by the way you have to get that data and how would you get the prior season forecast probably the best way to do that i'm not sure i mean you uh, might have to get well, betting odds you have to or you, you could right. you could get them from betting odds or something like it's not going to be a perfect analysis but yeah you need a pre-season forecast so, so and here, the actual season out here's how i would do it if i had to do this as quickly as possible i i would argue that finding those betting numbers and uh, would be a little hard so what i would do is i would build a model based on your previous uh two or three seasons at forecasting the next season and that would be my model i'd probably do a linear model for that and then I would uh, I would subtract that forecast from what actually happened, um, and I then would look at the square root, the, the standard deviation of those differentials, the root mean squared error. I think it would be around seven or eight. That would be my, my forecast. I'd be surprised I, if it were if it were five or six. Put it that way. That seems a little tight, but maybe I'm wrong. Who knows? Well, let me ask a related question. The last in our last two minutes before we have to take a break. Uh, Ronald Acuna Jr. signed big contract. Um, the Braves. Yeah, he has an OPS this year of 0.772. Yeah, having a bad year. Yeah. Would you be at all worried? And the reason I ask is, and this is what I wrote in our rundown. We have about a minute left. Do great players ever have that bad a season? I'm not saying it's a horrific season, but it's not good. Would you have any concerns of, of now that you've signed him to a big contract? His OPS is under 0.8. Well, we're talking sixty uh, percent of a season. Uh, Nine hundred, by the way, is considered a very, very good, o- you know, OPS. A thousand is is is, is elite, elite. Right? elite. So nine hundred is great. Uh, so I, I said his slower. was seven seven two. Yeah. Okay. So so it's a little on the bad side. Would I be concerned? Yes. Would I be very concerned? No. 
And one of the things we would actually have to look at is we always talk about here on Morton Moneyball about things that are stable over time. Like remember last week we talked about pitch framing and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder how stable OPS is. That was my question is have do great players. Like if we looked at Big Poppy, I guarantee you he never had a season with an OPS of seven, 0.772. Never. Never. And so really? I, just, I don't think so. I don't think he ever I don't think he ever had a season of OPS of 0.72. All I'm commenting on is I'm starting to get a little bit worried if I'm a Braves fan then I've given a big uh, contract to Acuna. Well, well that, I, I'm sure that when we come back from the break, we'll have an answer to whether or not uh, uh, Ortiz ever had anything below 70. All right. 70. Well, well, we will talk about it right after the break. This has been the first half of Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with my co-host, Adi Weiner. Please stay with us. It's been two quarters of Wharton, Money, Wharton Moneyball, and come join us right after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball here on Sirius XM 132, the Wharton Moneyball podcast edition. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing, statistics, and data science. I'm here with two of my co-hosts, professor of data science and statistics, Adi Weiner, professor of data science and statistics, Shane Jensen. Some combination of the three of us and Cade Massey here every week on Wharton Moneyball. And Adi and Shane, one of the great things, of course, about our show is that we get guests that actually do data science and sports for a living. And certainly our friend, uh, our frequent co-host, uh, this year also co-teacher of Wharton Moneyball, uh, I guess, uh, Training Camp Academy, Eric Eager, is here. Uh, Eric, as people know, is the Vice President of Research and Development at Pro Football Focus. He's also the co-host of PFF Forecast Podcast. He's also a great follow on Twitter, at PFF underscore Eric. So, Eric, uh, welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Guys, thanks for having me on. It's so much fun to be in Philadelphia and to get to... uh you know, grow the game, as I like to say, right? Get, uh, you know, talk some uh, sports analytics to some really uh, talented kids. And and uh, and uh, now I get to uh, talk football with you guys. Yeah, no, it, it's great to have you. And of course, uh, I'll get the real score of how you did today for my son, Ben. But I know uh, <laughs> either way, he's going to, he, he really enjoys uh, pro football focus as well. Well, the other nice thing about having you on the show is it means that football season's getting closer. And that, of course, is exciting for all of us. So let me just start with, you know, while we've obviously talked to you many times, there may be some of our listeners, I can't believe who they would be, that don't know what Pro Football Focus does. So could you just give us a brief history of PFF, what the company does, and briefly what your job is as Vice President of Research and Development, and also what size team do you have now? I know it's an ever-growing team, and what kind of skills do you look for? Because a lot of our listeners are the college students and people that want to, you know, work in the industry in the future. So we'd love to hear about PFF, what you do and what kind of skills you look for in potential analysts. Yeah. Well, and, and it's, it's changed so much, you know, since, you know, I first, you know, met all you guys and, 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 you know, we were a team of two for a long time and uh, myself and George Shahuri, George has actually moved on from data science and is actually running uh, the consumer side of our business. Um, so, you know, I've stepped, you know, stepped in and, and now I run, you know, data science, uh, mostly on the consumer side of the business, but also we have, uh, you know, data scientists in our B2B set. So PFF has basically has a few different wings, like we, we do B2B stuff. So we build stuff for NFL teams, we build stuff for media entities. So, you know, NBC is our biggest client, but then we have, you know, ESPN and, and Fox and C, you know, CBS and everybody. 
who we support NFL Network uh, with some of our analysis tools. And then um, we, we've branched into soccer. Today we had a, a soccer guest that worked Moneyball, which is wonderful because I got to talk to some people who really you know, do data science uh, for a soccer team uh, in the MLS. And then um, we have a consumer side, which is basically selling uh, you know, tools for uh, football fans, gamblers, uh, fantasy football players. Um, is so, you know, and, and it's, it's a big, it's a big task, right? I mean, we're trying to take mountains of data, data that we, um, you know, increasingly collect for, for various reasons. So, um, I think an interesting aspect of, of this summer is I've had three interns, uh, work on, um, you know, this, this coverage, uh, past coverage data that we just collected. I also had, uh, folks at Wharton work on it this year because we just had, um, you know, a, a call from teams and a call from from inside the PFF to start collecting new data with respect to pass coverage. And so, um, you know, my team, which my team has, I have five data scientists right now uh, that work underneath me and then two that work in the in the B2B side of our business and then one that works in the soccer side of our business. Um, and and then, you know, they they have, you know, the task of putting models into production, putting building tools for play, you know, for teams to use, for agents to use, for consumers to use. And, and, and oftentimes, you know, during the, the summer months, we're, we're getting ready for the season. So what I like to do is hire people who are up and coming, uh, you know, and Zach uh, Drapkin was, was, you know, a former Penn student who now is an analyst for the Eagles was one of them last year. People who are starting in the business, I like to get them working on data sets uh, you know, that, that we just collected so that they can get a taste uh, of what it means to do research uh, in sports. So uh, it's a very broad, it's a very fun job. You know, you know, for me specifically, I do a lot of management now, but I'm, you know, I do get to do some data science, uh, you know, from time to time and, you know, it's just growing. And, and, and I think that we're, we're helping grow the game. Is it fair to say though, that maybe unlike when, well, I'll, I'll lump Shane into the young group, Adi and I into the older group. Um, is it fair to say that uh, students or people that want to work at pro football focus would need to have the following skills? Um, they have to have what I call data acquisition architecture skills. I mean, they have to be able to handle data. You can't just call somebody else and say, you know, create this database for me. And so they need that. They probably need predictive modeling skills. Um, they probably need communication skills. Um, but they also probably need like, you know, all right, so you now have the model output. What does it mean? Would those be the four major skill sets that you would say you're looking for when people, when you think about hiring people in data science? Absolutely. Like, I think you, you really do need, and I think the biggest one is communication, right? Like, I think the the day, and, and, you know, this is why I respect what you guys do so much, because, you know, as somebody who's come from a math department before, you know, that is sorely lacking in a lot of places, right? There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of great mathematics that's being done that isn't necessarily being applied to things. There is great subject matter expertise that's, that's, that's gained, and you don't necessarily get the, um, you know, the, the, the forces joined, right? Um, but if you have good communication skills, both from the quantitative side, but also the subject matter expert side, you can really do a lot of damage. But yeah, and then on top of it, and, and this is why, you know, every student, and this is the time of year where you get students saying, hey, what should I do with my life? I almost always say, you know, you should, you know, learn more math than you think you'll ever need, right? Because, you know, I think for all of us, um, you know, we learn something different in our degree than we're doing now. And I, you know, this is not a universal truth, but I found it true in my life where, you know, if you have a mathematical habit of mind, 
that's strong, you can adapt, right? So if you're somebody like me and your PhDs in dynamical systems and stochastic processes and things like that, you know, data science is, you know, somewhat tangent, you know, close to that, but it's not perfectly aligned with that. I didn't spend four or five years, uh, you know, uh, honing that craft, you know, 40 hours a week, but it, but it was easy for me to, to sort of move into that. Um, you know, things change within a business realm. So, you know, uh, for example, at PFF, we've moved, you know, more from a top-down modeling framework uh, that that's worked for us for four or five years to a bottoms-up sort of simulation framework. Like that takes a change in the ability, you know, that t- takes adaptation skills. And I think the more mathematics, the more, you know, statistics that one knows, the easier that is to do, the easier that is to apply. Uh, and so that's the kind of skills I'm looking for for folks as well. It's just like the adaptil- adapted, uh, you know, the ability to adapt. And then as well as, you know, just, you know, being able to sort of, um, you know, as you said, work through the gradient of predictive modeling, descriptive modeling, uh, as well as, you know, handling these big sets of data. So let's now dive in now that we have a, a reasonable understanding of PFF and your team and the kind of skills you look for. Let's let's dive into the upcoming NFL season. But let's even forget about the season itself. Let's talk about the offseason. One of the things every fan likes to do is to say, wow, what we did in the offseason is really going to change our team. So let me just start with the first one. Let's even talk about something locally to Philadelphia. So we got A.J. Brown. But let us I don't even necessarily specifically mean A.J. Brown, but sure. How do you at Pro Football Focus think about evaluating off-season moves that teams make, given that A.J. Brown, for example, has never played with the Philadelphia Eagles. Um, how do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think it's important to look at teams in what situation they're in in their their, te- uh, their team-building process. So, you know, what we saw, and, and Adi and I talked about this at dinner last night, it's like you have teams that are in their a different sort of realm of where they are from a quarterback standpoint. So, you know, right now in the NFL, they have the rookie wage skill since 2011. That has given teams a substantial edge. Every single uh, Super Bowl, except for one, since 2012, has included a quarterback who is making money on a rookie deal. So, well, not you know, the last, not the last one. Uh, Joe Burrow. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. I was yeah, going to yeah, say, yeah. No, and, and all the other ones involve Tom Brady. That it would, it's even more remarkable. Yeah, that's exactly, yeah, exactly right. Like six, I think six, six of those Super Bowls included Brady, who's not on a rookie deal. And yet you still have, so if you go through the numbers, it's like, um, you know, Colin Kaepernick, Russell Wilson twice. Yep. Cam Newton once. Um, Jared Mahomes Goff. twice. Carson Wentz. Patrick Mahomes. Mahomes yep. And Burrow. So like every single team, Every single game. So it was the Matt Ryan, Tom Brady Super Bowl that didn't include that didn't include a quarterback on a rookie deal. But basically, this idea of like, okay, when you pay a quarterback, so Joe Burrow, when he was a rookie, was making ten million dollars. The next uh, highest paid quarterback, the next che- cheapest quarterback who wasn't on a rookie deal was Teddy Bridgewater that year. He was making twenty million per year on his deal. So it was a ten million dollar gap between the best young quarterback and the worst veteran quarterback. And so when you do that, you can allow, you can overspend, right? So you can make, you can, you know, and and we talked, you know, football is sort of this weak link system, right? Where you, you kind of want to be able to buy competence everywhere, but the quarterback position and then hope the quarterback position gives you brilliance, right? And that, that's kind of the, the recipe for winning. Now, 
the quarterback is so tough because once they get past the rookie deal, we just saw Kyler Murray sign a deal that was worth $46.1 million per season. Like that's four and a half times what Joe Burrow is making per year. And, and so then you have to make weaker gambles across the roster to support him. And so he better be one of those quarterbacks that can overcome, you know, a weaker support. And so just to come back to your original question, it's like these teams that have traded for wide receivers. So you look at, you know, Kansas City, they have a highly priced quarterback. So they had to trade Tyreek Hill to the Dolphins, who have a quarterback on a rookie deal. Um, the Titans have a highly paid quarterback in Ryan Tannehill. So they had to trade A.J. Brown to the Eagles, who have a quarterback on a rookie deal. Um, and, and that's, again, like when I think about that, yeah, if the Chiefs would have traded a first, a first round pick and paid A.J. Brown that kind of money, I would have raised my eyebrows because they don't have the room for that. But I right. look at the Eagles and I think, okay, you have two more years where your quarterback is not making great money. He's actually, in fact, making better money. You know, the, his deal is way better because he was a second round pick and he's even cheaper. But like you, you can strike there while the iron's hot versus, you know, when Kansas City traded Tyree Hill, it was one of those where it was like, well, if you look down the horizon for the Chiefs, if they sign Hill to a top of market deal, there's not going to be a whole lot in the way of flexibility to build the rest of that roster. A rest of the roster that, you know, after they made won the Super Bowl in 2019, made the Super Bowl in 2020, struggled a little bit last year, even though they hosted another AFC championship game. Like you needed to sort of like take a reset and let the roster breathe a little bit and build resources. So I think for when I evaluate decision make decision makers and decisions in the offseason, I sort of say, okay, well, what did this team have to do? What are these team, what is this team's expectations? And what is, what are what is this team's context in which they're building a team? Do they have a quarterback on a rookie deal? Do they have a quarterback on a veteran deal? Is the quarterback on a veteran deal good enough, like Patrick Mahomes is, I think, to deal with a reset and still be competitive? Or is it more like a team like Minnesota, who has a quarterback on a veteran deal and has struggled in recent years? And, you know, that makes it, I think, a little bit more complicated. Adi, I know you have a question from a listener. Did it come in, by the way, Adi, through moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu? No, it did not. It was actually sent to me directly. Um, ah, but okay. it's a great. It's a it's an interesting question. Actually, completely. Um, it's it, and Eric has actually gone at least part way towards answering it. I think so. I'll just give the question, and you can you can fill in the details. The question comes from a listener uh, um, uh, uh, um, who asks a very specific uh, question. His name is Giddy Roan, and he says, "Why is it that he doesn't get how how Baker Mayfield, a former number one pick, um, could go could get traded for a sixth round draft pick?" He just finds that crazy. Six-round draft picks can't be worth very much. And wouldn't Baker Mayfield be worth more than that? And maybe you can explain how that is. A, either, it, either it was a bad trade for one of those sides or that's a, it was a good trade. And, and what, what, what does, what's not understood about that? Yeah, it, it's really interesting because Baker Mayfield, if you look, and again, uh, wins and losses are not a quarterback stat, but they're also not not a quarterback stat, if, if that makes sense. Like, you know, it, it, the team – team success is very correlated to how the quarterback plays. And, you know, the, the Browns, before they drafted Baker Mayfield, the, the, fir- the 32 games before they drafted Baker Mayfield, they won one game. So they were one in 31. In the 60 games that Baker Mayfield played, the Cleveland Browns, who have been one of the worst franchises in the NFL for the last, you know, 25, 30 years, were 30 and 30 in games that Baker Mayfield played. So it, it, Baker Mayfield is a very interesting, like, example of the, of the issues – that arise in quarterbacking in 2022 because he's very much good enough to be a starting quarterback in the NFL, 
but he's not good enough to make what ba- what Kyler Murray just made, which is a you know forty six point one million dollar APY deal. The problem is, is there's no there isn't recent precedent for a quarterback of that caliber to get a deal that is fair. You know, um, Blake Bortles, you know, the third overall pick of the Jaguars in twenty fourteen, was the last sort of quarterback that got that was drafted high, that did that that got a contract from his initial team that wasn't like what I would call the max deal, right? And and Blake Bortles is not a good quarterback. I think if you if a team approaches a quarterback with a deal and says, hey, we're going to give you a deal kind of like the Bortles deal, they're going to say, okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm out then. You know what I mean? And like somebody like Jameis Winston, who was the first overall pick in the 2015 draft, played his rookie deal, was, you know, up and down, let's say. You know, he ended up getting a, a deal less than $5 million and a one-year contract for the New Orleans Saints to be a backup. Like the, the, the chasm there is so humongous. So mm-hmm. when, when somebody like Mayfield gets there, and again, Mayfield was on the fifth-year option, they, they exercised it. So it was a guaranteed deal worth, you know, near $20 million or so. It was kind of like this, this ball and chain that the Browns had to get rid of. And the last part of this, the answer is in the NFL, it's not so much about trading for the player. It's about trading for the contract, too. And so... You know, we saw, for example, the Browns gave up just a fifth round pick for Amari Cooper, the wide receiver from Dallas. That was mostly because Amari Cooper was relatively expensive. So if you if, if you're willing to take on that contract, you don't have to give back as much in terms right. of draft they want to dump the contract. Exactly. So I think part of it is Mayfield, you know, the Panthers took on some of that money that the Browns didn't want to take on. And and Mayfield also was one of those where he's clearly not in that group of quarterbacks that is considered like a franchise guy, even if he's starting caliber. So in, in essence, like then if, if that's the case, it's very Boolean. You're a zero if you're not a one and, and he's a zero in the minds of the league. So that, that kind of, I think is, is the answer to why, like they couldn't really get anything. And then additionally, they, they already tipped their hand by signing Deshaun Watson and paying him what they paid for him. So they, there wasn't like the two way go that they would have in a negotiation they were getting rid of Mayfield so that significantly reduced his price as well Shane I know you had a question yeah Eric uh, I guess we've been talking so much about and I I think it is still like kind of the, one of the dominant you know team building sort of like things is that you need to have you know you are very much aided by having a quarterback on a rookie deal but this offseason we've sort of seen that wide receivers are now top wide receivers yes. are now starting to get very very expensive as well like edging into maybe that at least you know, kind of average quarterback sort of range. Do you think like five years from now, we'll be talking about how it's key to team building to have both a receipt, you know, a, a wide receiver and a quarterback on a rookie deal? I think so. For one, I'm, I'm kind of happy that this has happened just because, you know, when we built PFF wins above replacement, like one of the things that we noticed were that wide receivers were underpaid. And so, um, you know, we've seen the market sort of move to this idea of like, if PFF were in charge, this is how much wide receivers would be paid. So in that way, it's reassuring. But there's been we've done additional research that has shown that like it, it's different than quarterback in that wide receiver depends upon other things enough where it's still a weak link system. So I like to think about, you know, in base, you got you, all of it. Everybody's a baseball fan. Right. So I like to think about, you know, we, the Oakland A's, right, where they they could win 110 games, but they could not win a playoff series because the composite, the, the, the roster composition you needed to win 
you know, 110 games in a regular baseball season versus three out of five or four out of seven games in a playoff series are different. And I think that it's true about the NFL. So what we did a study where we looked at, okay, going into a game, who were the best, who's the best receiver on a team? Who is the second best receiver, third and fourth and fifth. And what we found is the, the, the expected points added in that game was more sensitive to how well the second and third receivers on a team did than the first receiver. Additionally, this, it became more pronounced to the point where your number one receiver hardly at his performance in a game, hardly influenced your expected points added um, in playoff games. And so I like to think about this from like the perspective of green Bay, for example. So they had uh, Devonte Adams who might've, he's probably the best wide receiver in the NFL. Um, you know, I think his, you know, he was mostly a one man show, especially last year for green Bay. Um, previous years, they, they had some help, but not like elite level help and certainly not depth. And so in a regular season, when you're facing teams like the Detroit Lions who get hurt or don't draft well at corner, or you face the Minnesota Vikings who have had similar straights two games a year, like you can win 13 or 14 games in a regular season by having a great number one wide receiver and just exploit it, having him exploit the weaknesses in a defense. Like it's, it's strong link enough in that way. But when you get to the playoffs, there are every team that you face in the playoffs is a lucky, meaning that they're healthy enough to have four or five defensive backs that can match up with you and, and, and be good, you know, and so those defensive backs are generally good. So what we've seen with Green Bay in the playoffs has been they, the other teams have enough resources to take away your top option. And so secondary and tertiary options are important, are more important. And that's really where Green Bay has struggled. So Green Bay, I think this offseason looked at that and said, well, for one, we have to pay Aaron Rodgers a ton of money. But two, Devontae Adams has been able to get us 13 or 14 wins. But it, in their team building strategy, like that hasn't been satisfactory to fans, right? They're title town. They need to win a Super Bowl. And so instead of piling all this money into Devontae Adams, they traded him for a first round pick, a couple, a first round pick this year, especially to the Raiders. And they use their, their resource to draft two wide receivers, to sign Sammy Watkins, and, and, to, and to make a gamble that if they had a more evenly distributed receiver right. core, they would be able to win that way. So to, to come back and answer your question, I think that you have to spend resources on the wide receiver. I think that where we might err in comparing it to quarterback is that I think it has to be more evenly distributed for some teams than quarterback, obviously, which is just a one player playing at, the, at a time. So we're here on Morton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing Statistics and Data Science. I'm hosting today along with my colleagues, uh, Professor of Statistics and Data Science, Adi Weiner and Shane Jensen. And of course, we're joined by Eric Eager, longtime friend of the show, who's Vice President of Research and Development at Pro Football Focus. He's also, of course, a great follow on Twitter at PFF underscore Eric. I have just one question and then I'll turn it over to Adi. Um, we've mentioned the following names, I think, during the last 20 minutes of the show. We've talked about A.J. Brown. We talked about Tyreek Hill. We talked about Devontae Adams. We've talked about Baker Mayfield. We talked about Deshaun Watson. We could also, I'll add into the list, Tom Brady unretiring. What do you think is the biggest move that has happened in the offseason? And also, since we're an analytics show, why do you think that? Oh, that's a great, I mean, I think mathematically it's Tom Brady coming out of retirement, right? So you know, when, this is this is funny, but like when Tom Brady was retired, his MVP odds were forty-five to one. So the the sports books were still still taking bets on it. Um, 
And now he's nine to one to win MVP. So that's like, if you look at the break, even that's a 9% move, which is humongous for an off season price, Tampa Bay. Just to be um, clear for our listeners, uh, nine to one is basically 11%, 45 to one, 2%, just for our listeners. That's where Eric's saying the 9% move, which is obviously huge. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the uh, Tampa Bay now, now Tampa Bay already plays in a kind of a dreadful division, but you know, Tampa Bay was, you know, plus 120 or so to win their own division before Brady unretired. So, you know, that's like a 45%, you know, you need a 45% break even there. Um, and now they are, you know, basically like minus 250 to minus 300 to win their own division. So they're, a, they went from basically being a coin flip to winning their own division with, you know, basically what I would consider a cloud of uncertainty. I don't think everybody closed the door on Brady at all, but then now that Brady is for sure playing or, you know, in theory for sure playing, like they're, they're a humongous favorite to win that division. And they're the second highest team in terms of Super Bowl odds. So they're seven to one to win the Super Bowl. Uh, you know, so to me, that's the biggest move is Brady unretiring. And I mean, I think it makes all the sense in the world. Brady last year led the NFL in PFF wins above replacement, which is our war metric. He, I believe I, I have to, I have to make sure that I, I quote this properly, but I believe that they are the first team in the history of the NFL to win 12 or more games throwing the ball 70% or more, you know, you, and, and, you know, the, the, the league is littered with guys who throw a lot because their team is bad. Um, and, you know, the, the, and the league is also littered with teams who throw well, but get ahead in games. And so they can run the, the clock out. Tampa was we had this weird team where they played some close enough games where Brady really did have to air it out in like almost every game. And they still won a significant fraction of the games. They very much leaned on him. I think he had like, you know, hundreds of pass attempts more than Aaron Rodgers who ended up winning the MVP last year. Um, and, and, and he, you know, was very, very good uh, in a very high volume situation. So, uh, you know, I think he's, you know, it's big for him. Um, I, I'll be interested to see if he falls off at all because so far he hasn't really shown signs of doing it. Well, uh, I'm as a Tampa fan, I'm hoping not. Adi, I know you had a question for the yeah, other. Yeah, one of one of the things that that, that uh, I've tried to do in developing my knowledge of skill of sports outside of the ones I've known really well, and, and football will be one that I don't know that well, is to constantly kind of think in my mind. Well, what are the big accomplishments of uh, analytics in that sport? And in football, I think the first one was aggressiveness on fourth down. Um, the next one would be pass more. Um, third one might be running backs don't matter. Um, then there's a couple that are hanging out there where, where we're interested to know what's going to happen with them. And, and one would be, um, the play action. You can't run it enough. I'm not sure that that's gotten, um, the status of, uh, of, uh, truth yet. Maybe you can comment on that, but the, but the, um, one that you just threw out that, that you talked about just a moment ago might be another one that we, that five years from now, we're talking about, uh, you know, you can't win with a, with a singular wide receiver. You got to have a staff. You're really only as good as your weakest link, I think is what you're telling us. Um, and, and that might be a, a genuine money wall, money wall moment. Is it, what do you think about those? And is there, is there another on the horizon that I'm not missing that would be in that pantheon? Yeah, I think, you know, um, and I was actually thinking about this with respect to COVID two years ago at the NFL combine or two and a half now, where I was thinking to myself, like, you know, when we talk about, you know, you guys talk about COVID every single week, it's like, you know, the society is sort of only as good as the least adherent, right? Or, or you know, that kind of thing. And so I was thinking about that with respect to the, the, the secondary. So the coverage unit where, you know, everybody wants to spend big money on a corner, 
But if they're the other corner on your team, isn't very good. then the quarterback can just look away from that, you know, and, and there are obviously limitations to that if you're under pressure and your first read is against the great corner, then the defense is going to have an advantage over you. But for the most part, like a quarterback can kind of choose where they go. Conversely on the offensive line, it's the opposite. Like if you have a great pass rusher, so let's say you have TJ Watt, you can line him up over the worst tackle on the team and, and, and he can get pressure. And so I, I kind of looked at all these wing click systems. And in fact, there's a, there's a great article on PFF.com about offensive line play that sort of alludes to this from last week. One of my interns, Judah Fortgang. By the way, I have to drop you just for one second. Eric. When you just said that, did your training, your PhD training, and I forget you called it, it was the systems dynamics. You just use like, to me, systems dynamic thinking, like weak link. Like that's kind of how yeah. I think systems engineers think about operational systems. Is, has, I just want to know, I didn't mean to stop you, but did your PhD training help you think about that problem at all? A little bit. I, I think, you know, especially when, so, so <laughs> population dynamics is sort of on two levels actually. Right. So it's, it's on the, what we call like the, the population level. So where you're viewing populations is sort of continuous. Um, and that you, you know, you sort of use like differential equations there and those do a great job of looking at dynamics that are kind of like above extinction levels. Right. So they're very good at understanding endemic you know, diseases, for example. But then if you want to understand like invasiveness, so things like, you know, early stages of, a, of an epidemic or early stages of rumor propagation or early stages of, um, you know, anything really, you really have to get down and do either like a simulation or get graphical with it, right? So what I mean by that is you have to look at the connectivities of the systems, right? And, and there's a well-known theorem, you know, in, in network you know, network theory that basically says like the, the connections don't have to be that strong for the, the system to be pretty robust. Right. Um, and, and I think that that's kind of like where I'm looking at teams where I'm thinking to myself, like, I don't necessarily need the strongest. So I take Cincinnati last year, for example, the Bengals, you know, they spent a lot of money on Trey Waynes, but he basically never played for them. Every single other guy. So the Bengals last year had, a, I believe, six players in their secondary that had played a thousand or more snaps for another NFL team and had failed, they brought all of them in and then they had a couple holdovers and they said, okay, let's let the five best guys play. And they never had a brilliant player in the secondary other than the, the, one of the incumbents, but they had a good secondary, right? Because the, the, all the weak, like all the four out of fives made a, you know, eight out of five group, you know what I mean? And like, that's right. kind of, you know, whereas a lot of secondaries are built off of, you know, one guy's a nine and the other guys are twos and the other team just pushes at the twos. And then you're, the, the, the money you plow into the nine is sort of actually not worth it. And, you know, there's a theorem in, you know, there's a theorem that basically you know says if you take the product and, and the, you know, think about this from a team building standpoint, where if you take a bunch of numbers who have a fixed sum, so that's like the salary cap, right? Take a bunch of numbers that have a fixed sum. The product positive. is ma- positive. The pro- yeah, positive numbers have a fixed sum. The product is is maximized when all the numbers are equal. And so, like the simplest version of that is like think about the offensive line. If you look at pass protection, the product of each individual player's probability of prote- of successfully pass protecting on a play is is the unit's pass protection on a play. And 
the map you're going to maximize that assuming you have constraints but even if you don't have constraints you can show that the partial the biggest partial derivative happens when you improve the weakest player and and, and so like you know thinking about it that way it's like you know chiefs just got done having a negotiation with orlando brown orlando brown wanted to be the highest paid left tackle in football the chiefs balked and said no it's a great decision right because if you try to if, if, even if you assume that you're paying for a guy to go from, let's say, an 87 win rate to a 95 win rate, that doesn't matter nearly as much as taking your weakest guy right. from an 80% win rate to an 87% win rate. And so, again, like I think all of these things are, are very much that way. The hard part is now is actually implementing that strategy. That, to me, is a would be – if you could somehow close that, Audi, you have kind of one of the great accomplishments of football analytics. If you can figure out how to – reliably predict average without going overboard and, and, and paying, paying too much for average, I guess is like really the hard part. And I think, I think just as a comment, not really, uh, uh, you know, arguing against that. Uh, but, you know, we, we were talking before about how, like, you know, a lot of teams like have to like, you know, like the that that maybe it's it's not so valuable to have that number one receiver. It's really more about your depth at the end of the number two through five receivers. Well, you know, from the defensive point of view, you know, having that one shutdown corner, if the team you're facing has that number one receiver is, is going to be more important than if the team you're facing does not have that number one receiver. I think so, but there are things that offenses can do that can free up the receiver. So let's say, let's say you have an offense that has nine, let's say a nine wide receiver. Like I'm just putting these out of 10, right? Yeah. So you have a wide receiver who's a nine and the other team has a corner who's a nine. And then, and, but essentially you can motion that receiver around and kind of like, in, and again, he's not going to be optimal necessarily playing like, let's say in the slot versus playing outside where he's normal. But if he gets into the slot and he's going against a two, he might only be a seven in the slot, but he's still going to win, right? Um, because the offense kind of can dictate the matchups better. And so what you really want to have if you're a defense is a bunch of players who are kind of like fives, you know. And so if the offense tries – And adaptable, those, adaptable yeah, fives. Yeah, exactly. And so if the offense tries those gimmicks, they'll be less adaptive to your defense. And, and again, like even in the simplest terms, if you have a nine against a nine – then, then the game comes down to your secondary receiver versus their secondary corners. Right. And so, and 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 that's again where I'd rather my secondary wide receiver be a seven than than a three um, against against the opponent's you know secondary players. But again, it, yeah, it's a great. I mean, and and look, like there's a, a, there's so many constraints that you have, right? When you're, I always think about this with the Chiefs, right? Where they had Patrick Mahomes on a rookie deal they signed Sammy Watkins to a $16 million per year deal. Again, Sammy Watkins is probably not worth 16 million a year, but when you have Patrick Mahomes making rookie money and producing at such a surplus, you can take some of that surplus and guarantee yourself an average receiver by paying him above average money. You kind of have that sort of like that leeway and Sammy Watkins in, he had over a hundred yards in both AFC title games. He played in for the chiefs. He had a really big game in the Super Bowl that they won. So ultimately, they you know you can use some of that slack that you have in other positions to sort of overpay maybe for to to make sure you get on the green with some of these players that you need to be average or better, competent or better. Whereas if you're paying now that the Chiefs are paying Patrick Mahomes 45, 50 million a year, they have to basically pay 
below right. average wages and hope that those guys become average. Right, can perform. Well, this has been the first three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. Uh, this is Eric Bradlow. I've been co-hosting today with Adi Weiner and Shane Jensen. Of course, we have Eric Eager joining us for the second half of the show, Vice President of Research and Development at Pro Football Focus. So please stay with us and join us again right after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow. I'm co-hosting today with Adi Weiner and Shane Jensen. And we're, of course, joined again by our guest, Eric Eager, uh, Vice President of Research and Development at Pro Football Focus. He's out. Well, he's here in Philadelphia helping us teaching in our Wharton Moneyball Training Academy today, which is obviously great service mission to high schoolers who are very interested in data science and sports. So we've been talking to Eric about the upcoming NFL season. Sarek, one of the things that's also happened, which is one of the questions we've talked about for the last eight and a half years on Wharton Moneyball, and I know you've just written about it, is how to think about the importance of coaching and coaching changes in the NFL. So there have obviously been some coaching changes in the NFL. There always are. You know, Usually I think the norm might be six or seven every year. But how do you think about the impact of coaching and what impact that will have, either on the expected wins of a team or – how you think about it will change the long-run prospects of the team. How do you think about coaching and its impact on teams? I think it's so important, especially on the margins. You know, I, you know, I think the, of like the New York Giants last season where, you, you know, they had a top 10 pick on the offensive line. They had a top 10 pick at quarterback. They, you know, uh, spent big money on Kenny Galladay. They, they drafted Kadarius Toney pretty high. I think the defense had, you know, fairly solid pieces. And, you know, that coaching staff, you know, Jason Garrett at offensive coordinator, you know, Joe Judge at, uh, as head coach, like they just weren't up for it. Right. And, and so, you know, every single if you're, you know, losing at every single turn just from a schematic standpoint, it's just so hard when your team is like sort of marginal. And, and so you get a team that's like, you know, one of the worst in football, you know, just based upon that alone. And so. I think in those cases, when you lose that or you lose an Urban Meyer in Jacksonville, which clearly was not ready to be an NFL coach, clearly didn't have it, you know, in him to be an NFL coach. You know, Philly fans remember Doug Peterson wins the Super Bowl. He comes in there, you know, go and goes and coaches Philadelphia or, you know, Brian Dable, who I think is gets a lot of credit for pushing Josh Allen from a, you know, so-so quarterback to an MVP kind of quarterback. Just putting those guys in place when there were disasters in place, I think is so huge. Just, again, getting guys lined up, getting guys to do what they're supposed to do. I think there's you can pull a team out of like the really bad basin of teams by just getting competent coaches in place. And then for the really elite teams, you can truly change kind of the complexion of, of where those teams are. And here's an example. You know, I, I think about the San Francisco 49ers, they have Jimmy Garoppolo quarterback. We, we chart things called big time throws and turnover worthy plays and big time throws are just throws that are, you know, they get the highest grade from us, get highest grade from scouts. Turnover worthy plays are what they sound like. They're passes that should be intercepted. They're passes that are in harm's way. Jimmy Garoppolo last year, the 10 to 19 yard passing range, which is like the most valuable range of the football field, had two big time throws and 15 turnover worthy plays. You know, good quarterbacks are normally one for one in that region or even like more big time throws and turnover worthy plays. And yet the 49 on those throws, he had a 107 passer rating, meaning he was above average passer there. So somehow Kyle Shanahan was able to take 
poor quarterback play and still turn it into efficient offense there. You know, you have Sean McVay, you know, Matt Stafford went from a Detroit team that for much of his career was a mess. He goes to LA. He still has a lot of the same works. He still leads the team, leads the NFL in interceptions along with Trevor Lawrence, but they, they play to his strengths and they win a Super Bowl. Andy Reid, obviously, you know, he won 66% of his games when Alex Smith was quarterback. As soon as he got what we all believe is a superstar in Patrick Mahomes, they've hosted four straight AFC championship games. So coaching matters a lot. It's hard to measure. We're trying, you know, we try to a PFF with, you know, offensive coordinator rankings. We try to, um, you know, with, with uh, other methods and things like that. So, but it, it matters a lot. And, it, and it's one of those things where, you know, especially for guys that you've never seen do a job before, it's, it adds a ton of uncertainty going into a season. Um, just kind of following up on those kind of offensive coordinator rankings or coach rankings that you do, are those more, more based on kind of your same sort of play-by-play evaluating the appropriateness of the scheme? Or is it more just sort of like, you know, this team's performance overall is sort of like above and beyond what we'd kind of expect based on its component parts. And you attribute that to the coaches. That's a great question. Just to build on that for our business listeners here, Shane is basically asking, do you guys take more of a macro top-down approach or a micro level approach and kind of add it up? How do you guys think about it? So, so we do two different things. We, we look at what are, what's called a uniqueness. So what, so there's a million variables you can think of to measure uniqueness. One of, so let's say the percentage of time a, a team runs uh, two tight ends, a percentage of time a team runs shotgun, a percentage of time a team runs inside zone, outside zone. So think about all of those variables. And as you, can, as you guys can imagine, some of them are correlated. So if you run two tight ends, you're going to run more play action than a team that runs one tight end. So we do, we do a lot of dimensionality reduction. We try to reduce the, the system down to a relatively small number of variables that are principal components of what we would consider an offensive scheme. And sometimes if you follow me on Twitter, oftentimes what I'll do is I'll like put on a graph the first two principal components just to sort of see how teams clump together. And then what we do from there is we take that, that, that set of principal components and we look at say, okay, how far is this team away from the origin? right, what we consider to be average, and how does that change over time? And you can actually look and sh- show that, like, Andy Reid, you know, he gets up for the good games, and then he kind of, you know, once the Chiefs have established themselves in a season, he kind of plays more vanilla, and then in the playoffs, he, he runs plays that are different than the rest of the league does, which is really cool. Kyle Shanahan has always had the most, and I know unique is a word that doesn't allow for qualifications, but he, he has the most unique scheme in the NFL, Sean McVay's second, and it's no mistaking that, like, those are the two of the hardest teams uh, that, that opponents talk about to, um, you know, defend for. That's, again, more of like a this is what. And then we have kind of a so what, which is on the play level, we have stuff like what's called expected points added, which I know has its, you know, that's, a, that's as good right now as we're going to do for a play-by-play value metric. And then what we do is say, okay, this team has this, this composition of grades. So it has a quarterback who grades like this, an offensive line that grades like that. And so on this particular play, you would expect this team to earn this many expected points. And then what we do is take the difference. We do a few different adjustments to basically say, hey, this kind of play doesn't happen very often. So let's not ding the coach if something really bad or good happens on this kind of play. Um, But we basically take the difference between expectation and reality way by how, how frequent those plays happen. 
and then you know that is our sort of like quality. So this is this is folks. the classic this is the classic residual analysis we do yeah. in lots of things like in marketing my home field. You know we have this latent concept called brand equity, and we basically yeah. residualize things and whatever can't be explained by those things we kind of add it up and said so that's the kind of unmeasurable impact. And so that's a very reasonable and interesting thing. Let me ask a more uh, tangible question since we're here in the city of brotherly love right now. And I'm I'm known on Morton Moneyball as the effect size guy. So let's imagine right now I have the same Eagles roster and I replace Nick Sirianni with Andy Reid. Just just to give our listeners a a sense, how many more wins or less wins do you think the Eagles get with Nick Sirianni versus Andy Reid? Or even whoever you think the best coach, and maybe you think Nick Sirianni is the best coach, I don't know. Whoever the best coach in the NFL is, if I replace him, replace Nick Sirianni with that coach, are the Eagles going up by 0.3 wins, half a win, one win? I mean, how big an effect do you think we're talking about here? I think, so, you, you always have to sort of draw error bars around this, right? So, I think the the 90% credible interval has, has an upper bound of like a win and a half. So, in the in the most extreme case, you might get an extra win and a half if you say tomorrow, hey, Eagles, we're going to turn back the clock and we're going to put Andy Reid on this on this team. Sirianni, you're out. I think the Vegas win total moves a half a win. And maybe, maybe, I, the, the, maybe the Eagles are a good team for this because I would assume that sort of like the, the effect of a coach, whatever it is, you know, is it, that, that number, that standard, that, that error, residual, yeah, it's like it's going to add the most to like a team around 50%, you know, an eight and eight tight or, you know, a nine and exactly. seven sort of team as opposed to like, you know, I mean, nobody can, you, you know, the best coach in the world probably not going to coach the Falcons, Falcons next year to like a, the playoffs. It's a good, I, I actually, my intuition would, I, I agree that near eight and eight, you have a decent amount. In, I, so, so here, here, my, here's my thought. If you oh, go, just if remember, you, guys, we have to be accurate. Seventeen game season. You mean eight and nine or nine yeah. and eight? But go ahead. Eight, eight and one. Um, <laughs> yeah, there if we you're go. You're eight, eight and one, and you put and you take a guy like Sirianni, who I think is a slightly above average coach, and you put in Joe Judge, the coach of the the Giants last year. I think the drop off is significant. I, I think it's more significant than if you put Andy Reid, like the comparable. Uh, positive coach, right? Because I, I just think there, I think he, a, a, a bad coach can tank an average team more than a great coach can make an average team great. Yep, that's very, very interesting. So, yeah, but even an effect that can be, you know, in the NFL, if even at the upper bound, if one and a, if you get one and a half extra wins, not only can that help you make the playoffs, but it could be a difference between a yep. six or seven seed and a three or four seed. And that's a huge, huge difference in the NFL. And I, I like kind of the observation that, you know, potential, I mean, I kind of agree that I think coach, coach influences or that the distribution of coach effects is not symmetric. It's kind of skewed in that I think really bad coaches like, I mean, like, like what Urban Meyer did in, in, in Jacksonville, like can, can completely like destroy essentially the culture of a team. Uh, whereas a really good coach on top of an average coach probably doesn't have nearly as much of an effect. Well, that, and, and that's my, so I, I talked, we talked about the Browns early in the previous segment. Like I actually think it's relatively easy in the NFL to go from a, being a one or two win team to being an eight win team. I think it's actually fairly hard to go from being an eight win team to an 11 win team. Right. Um, 
you know, because again, it's what you said, like a, uh, a team that wins two or three games is either really unlucky, right. In which case regression alone gets you in a, in a, you know, 500 basin or it's really poorly coached, which again, if you just take the coach out regression alone puts you in a fairly, uh, fairly good slice of, uh, of winning, but it's just so hard to get over the hump, right? Because football is so stochastic uh, at the game level and at the play level. It's just really hard for anything fundamentally other than quarterback play, but even then to get you from like a reliably a nine win team, like a 12 win team. It's why the highest Vegas win total this year is 11 and a half. And last year, the chiefs, it was Andy Reid's first ever season as the chiefs head coach where they went under the Vegas win total. Their win total was 12 and a half and they won 12 games. Right. So, you know, let let me um, let me throw out the the point that uh, I don't think anyone has ever predicted to be, you know, prior to the season by Vegas or by anyone to by anyone who's doing their work to have more than 12 wins. That's like predicting more than 100 wins in baseball. And even the best season teams are, if you're doing it right, will not predict 100 wins for a given team. We would predict that someone would win 100 like we would predict that someone would win 12. And probably more, but not in advance knowing it, even in the best team. And that's why 11 and a half is extraordinary. You know, uh, that's a great team if that's the preseason forecast. Yeah. And it was, it was sort of like in the class today where we talked about the birthday problem and, and it's, it's sort of like, it's the exact sort of thing. Like one person, two people are going to share a birthday to actually pick the, the birthday that two people are going to share is far less likely. Right. So the, it's exactly something weird in the NFL is going to happen the idea that the entire market can predict the one weird thing that's going to happen is pretty rare. Right. So we only have a few minutes left. Um, I'd like to ask a little more granular about the season itself. What division you already mentioned, we all, I'm a Buccaneers fan, but the NFC South sucks. We really don't have to, I mean, the bucks are good and the other teams aren't that particularly impressive, which division in football has you like, wow, that's a powerful division. Is it the AFC West Broncos, Chargers, Chiefs, Raiders? You could make an easy argument there. Is it the AFC North, Bengals, Steelers, Ravens, Browns, assuming, well, who knows if Deshaun Watson's playing or not. What division in football has caught your eye as this is a, you know, I'll put it this way, the lowest, every team has at least a, a legitimate probability of winning that division. I think you do have to go um, with the AFC West, the, the Raiders, who were a playoff team last year, even though they had a negative point differential. Uh, their season win total is eight and a half, so their market expectation is to be a 500 team and they have the, the lowest odds of winning the division at 13 to two. Um, so th- that's the one for me. It's like every, they're team lower is, than the Broncos. That's right. Yep. The, the Broncos. So the, the, the chiefs, this is the first time the chiefs have not been favored against the field to win their own division. They've won six consecutive AFC West titles. This is the first time they haven't been favored to win the division against the field since Patrick Mahomes became the quarterback. They're currently, depending upon what book you look at, are plus 175. Um, so they're they're the favorites, but they're underdogs against the field. Um, early in the offseason, the Broncos were the team, and they have an easy schedule relative to the rest of the division because they, fi- they finished last place last year. Um, they were the second most likely team. The, the Chargers were 4-1 to one to win the division. That would have been the first division title since 2009, but they have taken a lot of money. They have made a lot of strong free agency moves, um, you know, they're something now like plus 250 to win the division uh, after everything that they've done. Um, you know, I think that the Chiefs are going to still win the division just because, you know, usually betting on good off seasons is a bad play in the NFL. 
Um, even you know your Buccaneers, Eric, when they when they won the Super Bowl, didn't even win their own division uh, right. after getting Tom Brady. So you know the, it, it's incumbency is strong in the NFL. Um, you know, and so I would still you know predict that the the Chiefs are going to win that division, but I think that any team, I think any combination in that division is possible, um, including the Raiders winning it. I think the the Chargers could win it. Obviously, the Broncos with Russell Wilson. I have my doubts about how well he'll do in year one. Even Aaron Rodgers struggled in year one with Nathaniel Hackett as his quarterback coach and offensive coordinator. So, but I think that's the most variable one. Um, I think a sneaky division that could be interesting um, is the, is the AFC South. Um, We all look at Houston. They're kind of, you know, they're kind of down in the dumps, but Jacksonville with, you know, the aforementioned Doug Peterson, they're seven to one to win that division. I think that they have a chance if, if, the quarterback becomes really good, uh, Trevor Lawrence, the number one overall pick last year, then they don't have a hard schedule. Uh, the Titans are always underestimated this time of year. And obviously the Colts are now the favorite now that they have Matt Ryan to play quarterback. Um, that one, that one's going to be uh, very, un- I would, again, anything short of Houston winning, it would not surprise me in that division either. So we only have about one minute left. Um, what's your prediction for the NFL season? Who do you like as the elite teams? Um, and who do you think is going to be in the Super Bowl? Yeah, so I, I, I agree with the markets. I think the Bills and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are should be the two favorites. Um, I also agree with the price that you're getting for Green Bay and Kansas City uh, at 10 to 1 each. Um, a team that I like is a long shot, both to make the playoffs and to make and to make uh, hay is the Detroit Lions. I think the Detroit Lions uh, have a lot of, you know, their schedule is favorable. I think they have a lot of young talent. I think they have a coach that their team respects. Um, and they play in an NFC that, you know, when you look at it, other than the Rams, the Packers and the Bucks, and maybe the Cowboys, there aren't like a ton of teams that are untouchable the same way that the AFC is. Well, I, I hope Jared Goff has a better season than he did, because it's going to take that to uh, get it done. But I want to thank Eric Eager for joining us here on Morton Moneyball. He's always, always welcome on the show. Uh, Eric's vice president of research and development at Pro Football Focus. Uh, he's a great follow on Twitter at PFF underscore Eric. So, Eric, thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. Thanks for having me on, guys. So this has been four quarters of Wharton Moneyball. Uh, on behalf of myself, Eric Bradlow, Adi Weiner, and Shane Jensen, and our normal primary host, Kate Massey, who's not here today. It's been two hours of sports statistics and business uh, podcast edition. Uh, thanks to our producer, Matt Datz. Thanks to our associate producer and sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. Uh, between now and next week. Enjoy your sports, enjoy your statistics, and we'll see you next week here on Wharton Moneyball. Moneyball.